Greetings from Covenant Community of LJ, Georgia. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these messages God has provided to our fellowship from His Word. May He bless you richly as you seek Him. We'd like to invite you to be with us in person someday soon. And for information on that, visit us at covenantcommunitylj.com. And now, let's open up God's Word. We have a living hope. That's Jesus Christ. Man. I love Jesus. I love him. I know you do too. Praise God for the hope that we have. You know, Easter is coming up. Y'all know that, right? So start inviting your friends because we serve a risen Savior. And you don't have to wait to Easter, by the way, to invite your friends to come and worship and celebrate what God has done. But man, let's not miss this season and the, and the build up to it, to bring it up in conversation and, and anticipate it even in ourselves. That's awesome. Well, uh, wow, we are in the book of Galatians, and this is the fifth sermon in our series through Galatians, and so if you haven't been able to be here and are part of this, uh, we've finally kind of gotten up to date on our website in terms of all our sermons finally being there. So you can go onto our website and click sermons, and that'll take you to uh, SoundCloud, which you can also use if you're super high-tech. Your podcast players have a lot of different kinds of things from a lot of different ways. We've finally gotten in on all that stuff. So Search for Covenant Community of LJ Sermons, and hopefully you'll find us. And if your podcast player doesn't have it, let me know. We'll work on that. But anyway, if you haven't gotten caught up, do that, because this has been a really cool series through the book of Galatians. And it's a letter that Paul wrote to this group of people that he had been to visit in Galatia. Paul went on a mission trip, started four churches in Galatia, and it was a crazy experience for him. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Uh, But as he went... He would proclaim the simple gospel, and that means that it's simply this, that we have only one way of salvation, that we couldn't save ourselves, that we had separated ourselves from God because of our sin and our rebellion. And even though we made every attempt to fix that on our own, that all of those had failed. And so the Judaizers were coming in, uh, coming back after he would share the gospel, pointing to Jesus, saying that he alone can give us forgiveness and grace and mercy for our sin and bring us into right standing or righteousness with God. And so uh, he would go and proclaim his messages and then a bunch of people would come behind him. We call the Judaizers to try and put people back into Judaism, okay? Which means that you need to follow the ceremonial law, uh, be circumcised, all these kind of things. The whole idea was first you need to be a Jew, then you can be a Christian. Or even there were some who thought, you know, once you're a Christian, you can go to elite Christian status by observing the law as well. And what Paul is saying is that we don't need a hybrid version of the gospel. We shouldn't have a hybrid version. That's no gospel at all. Don't put people back into slavery. We on our own are, are rebellious. We are people who sin against God have turned away from him. Each of us to our own way, scripture says, And outside of Christ, we're guilty and deserve the death penalty. We really do. And and the thing is, is that even though you may regret that, you can't take it back. There's nothing you can do. And you can't be good enough to outweigh the bad on your own because you've already done it. That's not going to make it go away. And so really, you outside of Christ, you're lost with only one hope. And you're not it. It's Jesus Christ, right? You must be pardoned. You must be forgiven. And so if you are not a Christian this morning, and we would love to tell you that there is a God who can solve all of this and rescue you and bring you to right standing with God. And so as we continue on, we realize that Paul has written this letter to Christians, and he begins to get into the gifts of the gospel that are received by faith, not observance of the law. And so 
he begins to expand their understanding of these gifts of grace that come with it. So we're getting into the good stuff. And I'm excited about this this morning. He explains that the law made them slaves. This is a summary of the passage we're about to get to in the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. He said that the law made them slaves because of their sinful disobedience. And he describes them as under a curse, okay? And therefore, they needed the law as a guardian. But in the fullness of time, or another way of saying that is just the right time, they got it planned out. God redeemed his people. He's given them his spirit, adopted them as sons, enabling to call him Abba, Father. We'll get into that in a second. And these are these gifts of God's grace, redemption, we have adoption, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we are the offspring of Abraham, those who are in Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're invited into the promise. And so uh, this passage we're getting into points to our new identity in Christ. And we have fancy words to talk about that in, in Christianity. We call it our position. I understand that you haven't moved where you're standing, but in a spiritual sense, you get this new position when you begin a relationship with Christ, when you move from Outside of Christ, into Christ, your position spiritually has changed. Now you are, and you have sonship, and it points to the way, and this is actually really cool. This passage is going to point to the way that we fight to put into practice what's true of our position. Do you see that? This, this passage is going to deal with, and, and chapter 5 goes even further. Some of y'all were like, well, these are awesome theological ideas. How do I apply this to my life? Well, we're getting there. We're almost in chapter 5. We're really getting into what it is to walk in the Spirit. But this is a beginning point of how we begin to practice uh, what is true of our position. Our new position empowers new practice. And because we're positioned in Christ, this passage is going to tell us to put on Christ in a really cool way. So let's read it. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. I'll go to chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. He uses this slavery metaphor here. We were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, this is great, you are all sons of God through faith. We're going to come back to that because that is the greatest news you're going to hear today. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, you need to become a believer so you can be a son of God through faith. Anyway, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See that? So there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise established this whole new identity, and he continues on. He says in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is beautiful. This is the gospel here. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Wow. What an incredible passage, right? Way more than we can take in. Whatever you get out of this message today, you're going to need to meditate on this because this is the kind of truth that needs to work its way deep into your gut. To know it is one thing. To know it is an entirely different thing. And you get that through uh, meditating, walking in the Spirit, asking Him to reveal those things to you. Now let's, let's make some observations. Bring this down to where we can kind of see it. First thing I want you to get is that in Christ you have received a new identity. In Christ you've received a new identity. Now, it, it talks about, initially it says that under the law you were a captive under the law. Now what does that actually mean? Uh, I, I opened this series up, we talked about Martin Luther who sort of initiated the Protestant Reformation out of you know, a season where we sort of lost the truth of the gospel uh, and, and we needed to return back to it. And Galatians was sort of his favorite book, right? He loved Galatians. And, and so I found something that he wrote about this, and I think it's really important to get. He writes about this whole idea that we are captive under the law. And he says it uh, as one who struggled with it. Uh, Martin Luther struggled deeply with his own sense of guilt. He struggled deeply with a sense of condemnation. And, and let me separate these a little bit, because if you are not in Christ, if you are not saved, if you've not put your faith in Christ, and you feel guilty before God, you should, because you are. You hear me on that? And there's nothing I can do to fix that or encourage you. We were talking about that in Sunday school. I don't want to. I want to say peace when there is no peace. This is for Christians. The good news is for those who have come to faith in Christ Jesus. And, and but Martin Luther here is the one who's trying to follow Jesus, as one who's who's in Christ, struggled deeply with a sense of shame and guilt, just repeatedly. Uh, and and I, I separate guilt and shame because I think it's important to do that. Guilt is, it, hey, you can be guilty it's, and you know exactly what you're guilty of and you can deal with it. Shame is something different. It's not about what you've done. It's more like who you are. And the enemy comes in and attacks you and says, you are this, you are that. And it's much more ambiguous and difficult to deal with. And we struggle with those kind of things. And so shame is not what we're talking about. That's not good in Christ. Uh, guilt is something that the Holy Spirit uses to bring us to a place of repentance. But for a Christian... In this new position, who's doing his best like Martin Luther was working so very difficult, uh, trying to please God in his life, struggling with an incredible amount of guilt because he, he was believing that his right standing before God was up to him to maintenance. If he didn't keep the floor clean, so to speak, uh, in his heart, that he would somehow lose the favor of God. And he writes this. This is cool. It says, the law is a prison to those who have not as yet obtained grace. No prisoner enjoys the confinement. In fact, he hates it. If he could, he would smash the prison and find his freedom at all costs. As long as he stays in prison, he refrains from evil deeds. Not because he wants to, but because he has to. He's in prison, right? The bars and the chains restrain him. He does not regret the crime that put him in jail. On the contrary, he is mighty sore that he cannot rob and kill as before. If he could escape, he would go right back to robbing and killing. The law enforces good behavior, at least outwardly. We obey the law because if we don't, we'll be punished. Our obedience is inspired by fear. We obey under duress, and we do it resentfully. Now, what kind of righteousness is this when we refrain from evil out of fear of punishment? Hence, the righteousness of the law is at bottom nothing but love of sin and hatred of righteousness. At the same, the law accomplishes this much, that it will outwardly, at least, 
and to a certain extent rep repressed vice and crime. He's speaking of the guardianship of the law. The law was a guardian. How many of y'all drove to church today? Pretty much everybody, right? When you came, you probably came down this, this road here. We've got this speed limit sign that we got four lanes, and it says 35 miles an hour, right? <laughs> four lanes, 35. Now, if I had to guess, I would bet that only a handful of you were anywhere close to 35. There's a good chance you're probably in the 45, 50 range. And when you go home, really watch yourself. You'll see how fast you go down that hill. But if there was no sign there that said go 35, we would sort of make up our own, right? It, there would be no, nothing to restrain us, and some of you guys would be going 95. Uh, we know this down that road. The law is good in that it restrained us, even if the pressure is from the outside, it's not inward. But Martin Luther, he's, he's talking about that's how the law is, and since our guardian, and we're in this uh, in prison, he says, but the law is also a spiritual prison. So it's a, a prison in that it repressed and, and didn't allow us to do all the things that we would want to do, maybe, in our wicked spirits. So it physically kept us in prison. He said, but the law is also a spiritual prison, a veritable hell. When the law begins to threaten a person with death and the eternal wrath of God, a man just cannot find any comfort at all. He cannot shake off at will the nightmare of terror which the law stirs up in his conscience. Of this terror of the law, the Psalms furnish many glimpses. If you go back and read the Psalms, you see David struggling with his, his guilt and fear, knowing that, that he has broken the law. And says so the law is a civil and a spiritual prison, and such it should be for that the law is intended. Only the confinement in the prison of the law must not be unduly prolonged. No, we shouldn't stay there any longer. You have to. It must come to an end. The freedom of faith must succeed the imprisonment of the law. I love this. And so he's saying, as a stone prison proves a physical handicap, so the spiritual prison of the law proves a chamber of torture. But this, it should only be until faith be revealed. And now that we have faith in Christ, we are free to be a new person. To be crucified with Christ, die with him, have Christ in us, begin living in a different way. So no longer do we need to be in that kind of prison, with, restrained by the law. Instead, the law is written on our hearts, and we are able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to live in Christ the way that he would call us to. And we are set free in that to, to obey. Instead of being slaves to sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. We are free to honor God and to put into practice what is true of our position. So, uh, as I said, you, you receive this new identity when you come into Christ. And it says that you are free in Christ. And you're free by grace through faith. That's how you receive this freedom. And so, this is really cool about this identity part. I noticed in here, he goes through all these different divisions of people, uh, all these different things that separate us. And, and I think about the way that we introduce ourselves, the identity that we kind of have. Uh, when we present ourselves to the world. And there's this tendency, I've kind of noticed, as, as women, uh, they typically introduce themselves as, hi, I am married to this person, and these are my children, and this is my family. And men are all about what they do. It's all about, you know, this is what I do, this is what I've accomplished. We have all these different things that we think of, and we want to identify ourselves. But what this passage is saying is that no longer are you Jew or Gentile, male or female, or in our context, we could say, no longer are you you know, American or German or Guatemalan or French. You know, you're no longer that primarily. You are in Christ. 
No longer is your primary identity male or female even, or, or slave or free. There's no, in this, there's equality there. And in every other part of culture, you can go and find that there were all kinds of hierarchies and divisions. But what the gospel does is it, it elevates the poor, and it, even, it puts us all kind of in this equal footing at the cross in terms of our value before God, and we receive this new identity where we no longer have to define ourselves by what we've achieved or where we were born or what, all those things are, are distinct about us, but they don't have to cause divisions in the church. Does that make sense? And so there's no caste system in Christianity. And so we keep the distinctives about who we are. We keep those, but we scrap the divisions. We don't need those because in Christ, we have this new identity in him. And the example of this was the Pharisees used to, you know, pray and thank God. They would say, thank God I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile, right? And the gospel corrects all of that. It's not like, oh, thank goodness, I'm not these. It's we are in Christ and we are brothers and sisters in him. It's a beautiful thing. God has invited us to this new identity and treated us as sons. It's awesome. 1 John 3, 1 and 2 says this. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are children of God now. I love this. So Galatians 3.26 says that we are sons of God. So how can this be? We need to deal with this for a second. How do you get this new identity? So the second thing I want you to hear is this. That you were adopted as sons and daughters. You were adopted as sons and daughters. And we see this in Galatians 4.3. I love it. This adoption process was purchased through Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's beautiful. You see Paul write about this again in Ephesians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It's awesome. We've been adopted. Listen, some of you guys, you may actually feel like spiritual orphans. You may feel like you have no home base. You may feel like you're not sure where you belong, that you have any real identity. You might be confused as to who you are and where you fit in in this world. And God is saying through the gospel, you receive this whole brand new identity that you are in Christ and he has adopted you as his kid. Now, that sounds pretty cool, but when you understand in the context what that really meant and how that looks, this is beautiful. So I want to explain this. Uh, adoption is kind of defined like this. It's the legal device found in many legal systems by which a person leaves his own family and enters the family of another. You get this? He leaves one family, enters the family of another. And so with adoption, you are literally a, a favorite, a chosen piece of the family. And so uh, in older times, back in Roman history, uh, when they would adopt people, it wasn't just to sort of fill out their family. They honestly were, were very pragmatically looking for an heir, especially wealthy people that had an inheritance to give. They were looking for people to sort of give that inheritance to, and they wanted to pass that on. And so far from being like a second class kind of family member, they were 
pivotal in the family. And in adoption, sometimes they were even favored. And so it would expand and stabilize families that needed an heir in order to keep that family line stable and moving. And so this, this is how it worked out. This adoptee is taken out of his previous state, wherever it was going on, and placed in this new relationship with his new father. And, and in the process of this in ancient Rome, all his old debts, all of his old debts were canceled. This is cool, right? And in effect, that adoptee would start a brand new life. And from that time, the father, the new father, owns all the property and acquisitions of the adoptee. He controls his personal relationships and has the rights of discipline in that child's life. And on the other hand, he's involved with liability for any actions, anything that this person does uh, where he needs to make up for that. This new father is, is now engaged in making up for those, making amends. But in this Roman worldview that was happening here, sonship, this is the cool thing. It didn't primarily point to backward, kind of like, who, who was I born to? That wasn't the primary purchase or purpose of adoption. It was primarily looking forward to that inheritance. And so it wasn't who was I born into, it was who am I, what am I going to inherit? And, and this happened through adoption. So there are four huge consequences for an adoptee. So the adopted person lost all rights to his old family and gained all rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family. And in the most literal sense, in the legal way, he gets a new father and breaks ties with the old and goes into the new. And the second thing is that it followed that he became an heir to his new father's estate. And so all that the father had became his. And even if the other sons afterward were born who were real blood relations, it didn't affect his rights. He was always going to be a co-heir with those, those children. This is cool, isn't it? So uh, the third thing was that the old life of the adopted person is basically erased. It's completely wiped out. For instance, uh, like I said, the, the legal debts were canceled, wiped out as if they had never been. And the adopted person was regarded and treated as an entirely new person with a new life to which the past had nothing to do with them. And the fourth person is that in the eyes of the law, there was no difference between a son that was genetically born to that father and that adoptee. That's the adoption process in ancient Rome. And so Paul, as he's referring to this, he's saying that we have been brought into that. That, and this is what's crazy, is that all our old debts have been canceled. We were guilty. We should have been punished for all that we've done. We deserve the wrath of God. We are sinners and rebels against him. And whatever it is that has gone on in your past, the debts that you have accrued in Christ, when you come to faith in him, repent of your sin and come into faith, he erases all of those debts and you are leave your old family and come into a brand new family. You receive this whole new identity, a whole new last name, and you are invited in as if there were no difference, as if you've been there all along. You are legit family of God. You are sons. Isn't that beautiful? That you are adopted into his family. Adoption is right at the heart of the gospel of salvation. This is cool. John 1, 12 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of his blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So there's this really cool thing as he talks about God's fatherhood in our life. He, he says that we can refer to him as Abba. And he invites us in, Abba, Father. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, it says in Romans 8. And so what does this word Abba mean? We've talked about this once before. It's good to kind of back up. Um, you know, there was a time when I thought Abba was basically like the Aramaic word for, you know, just dada. And it was like nothing but that. And that was all it was. It was like baby talk. But if you go back and look at this, it's really the best, the best way I can describe it. It's almost like not just saying daddy, you know, it's, it's almost like my father. My, there's a personal, intimate sense to it. So there's this attitude of trust and respect communicated when they use, when they use that word Abba. So it's, it's not an excuse to act like you're six years old in front of the heart of God. All, all, every time you approach the throne of God, you know, it's not baby talk time, Abba. You know, it's not it. It's saying, my father, my father, my intimate father, one I love and trust and respect. And so it, it calls us into, when he, he's saying Abba here, they would have intuitively known that, that we're not called into a legal relationship with our new father. We're called into this very real, deep, relational connection with our new father. That you've been invited to not just know that you're his son, but you've been invited to know him personally, to have a rich relationship with him the way his son has with a loving and good father. And so, yes, this is what's crazy. The creator of the universe, if you are in Christ, is your dad. So you can go and remind all the demons on the playground that your dad has beat their dad. So that's good for you to know. <laughs> there's, a, there's an empowering thing that comes to that. And so uh, your new position, this, catch this, your new position empowers new practice. Let's turn the corner here. So we've got this beautiful position, but how does this change our, our, our actions and the way that we're living? And it's true this, that your new position empowers this new practice. It reorients everything about your life, your relationships, your pursuits, your passions, your pastimes, your identity, your perception of your past, your perception of your future. All of this has changed because you've been adopted as sons. And so I'm praying that you'll accept that truth down deep in your bones and go live in that way. And I promise your life will never be the same as you begin to really receive that truth by faith. And so we, we don't any longer relate to God as slaves. We relate to God as sons. Started off talking about slavery and now we're to sonship. You went from slave to son in Christ. Now, if you've rejected Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're standoffish, never come to the place where you realize you need a Savior for your sin, then all this blessing that I'm talking about, the blessings of God's grace, are not yours yet. They only come in Christ. You have to submit to him, yield to him, and come into faith in Christ Jesus. And we invite you to do that this morning by grace through faith, not through works. But as we see this, he's changed who we are. So here's the blessing, that you have been baptized into Christ. I love this. This word baptized in here is not directly, if you go back and look at the Greek, it's not directly talking about water baptism. It's, it's implying washed and immersed in this passage. You have been washed by Christ and immersed into him. You are positionally in Christ. You've been 
enveloped and immersed just like you plunged a cloth into water. You have, you've been put into him and he has been put into you. You've been saturated and immersed into Christ. You've been baptized into him. That is your new position. Now, the second thing is this, that you have the Holy Spirit. It's kind of the way that cloth goes in. It's like not only is the cloth in the water, the water gets in the cloth, right? Y'all with me on this? And that's what happens. You're filled with the Holy Spirit when you come to relationship with Jesus Christ. At that point of conversion, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of the blessing in this promise. And this third we've been talking about, you are adopted. You've been adopted. And so we, we can talk about positionally what those things are. We kind of have. And, and they're amazing truths. But today, I want to turn the corner and talk about this. With, if those things are true, how do we put into practice what we are in Christ? How do we do that? And John Piper said it this way. He said, we must fight to put into practice what you are in Christ. And it implies that there's a battle there. There's a fight. And, and I love this because here's the thing. You've been declared free, but you must fight and engage and operate with the power that God has provided you to experience the fruit of the freedom that you already have. So you, you've been declared free, but you've got to get in there and fight if you want to experience freedom. You've been given the land, but you have to progressively take possession of that land. And in the process, just like Israel had to pick up a sword, and sometimes God, God fought their battle where they barely had to lift a finger. Other times they had to fight tooth and nail. And some even lost their lives. There's a battle that goes with it, but the war has been won, and you've already been promised these things. You've been declared righteous before God and imputed with his righteousness. That is your status before God. But the rest of the New Testament and in Galatians chapter 5 is this invitation to put that into practice, to walk in righteousness. You've been declared righteous. Now walk in righteous living. You've been declared holy before God. Now put that into practice and live a set-apart, holy life, a heart of one substance. You've been declared a child of God. You've been adopted as sons. You've been adopted as daughters and co-heirs with Christ. Now live like a co-heir of Christ. You've been declared an ambassador. Then start sharing your faith like an ambassador. Put it into practice. You don't need, listen, this is what's so cool, is that Many of you are frustrated because you're not experiencing all these things that we're saying are true about you. And here's where Paul turns the corner. Is that you've got to put into practice what God has declared for you positionally. What he's made true about your new identity, you still have to engage and be a part of that. The great news is, is that just in the same way you receive the gospel, you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. And you also can't walk in these things yourself. He didn't leave you out here on, the, on your own to figure all this out, to try hard and do all these things. Instead, he's put his spirit in you that cries out, Daddy, Abba, Father, my Father, I long for you. I want you. I'm your son. I want that. I want this. And he draws us into this rich relationship with him, and he empowers us through his Holy Spirit that we can live through him. Now, here's the thing. We all grow in maturity, but at this point, I can say this biblically, you don't need to pray to receive the Holy Spirit, you already have the Holy Spirit. When you came into relationship with Jesus Christ, this is for you believers. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and he is at work in you. 
But we don't experience that until we yield to him. You've got to lay down your, your self-effort, lay down your independence, and lay down your pride before him and allow him to work in you and through you. And, and I really believe this. You're not going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life if you're going the opposite direction of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is going this way and I'm going this way, you're not going to experience the power of walking in the Spirit. Are you with me? So if you want to experience the power and richness and joy of walking in the Spirit, that fullness of the Spirit, it comes through walking in the Spirit. And that's what Galatians 5 refers to, where we get in step with the Spirit, almost like a marching band. Are you with me? Where we are in step. When He moves, we move. And when we do that, there is a power that comes with that that we want to experience, to experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You've got to allow Him to take over your life. And that's what I believe that we're called into, to put into practice, not on our own, not just out of our own self-effort, but through the power of Christ in us as we get in step with the Holy Spirit. We're empowered to put in practice what's true of our position. And so how do we do that? How do we do that? Last thing, number four. To put our position into practice, we put on Christ. Now, I love this. This is in Judges chapter 6. Um, there's this picture of Gideon, okay? And we went through... We went through Gideon uh, or Judges a while back, and we studied Gideon. And this is really beautiful piece uh, right in here in Judges six thirty four. It says the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and the significance there is that that word came in the Hebrew is labash, and what what does that mean? Is it means that you're clothed? It means clothed. It means sort of like then laid over a person, almost like a coat of armor, until that person becomes invisible. It's, it, it points to the fact that somehow in preparation for battle, when Gideon was going to go out as a general with his army, which was way too small to accomplish what God had set in front of them, but God was going to fight for them, that he literally clothed him with the Holy Spirit. And I think that there's a connection here where, where Paul is saying, put on Christ. Almost like how Gideon put on Christ through the Holy Spirit covering, working Christ on him, the Holy Spirit in him, like a mighty armor, like a robe of righteousness to step out into battle, clothed with Christ on him. That is awesome. Like armor, go out into battle, clothed in him. And so this is the thing. The gospel never calls us into lawless living or careless and sinful lives. Never suggests either that there won't be a fight in regards to putting in, into practice what's true of us positionally. And, and I, I believe this, that your growth and your progressive transformation in Christ's likeness, which is what God desires for us, is going to require us to engage in some battles. You're going to have to get into battles. And the good news is Christ has already won. <laughs> he's already won the victory. And that he's going to fight in you through the Holy Spirit. And through you as Christ operates to finish the good work he has begun in you. He is going to finish what he started in your life and in your heart. So I pray as we kind of close here and guys don't want to get ready. We're, we are not here. And as we preach through Galatians, there's been so much these big ideas. But as a church, we're not here to settle on just celebrating the big idea and the theology of our freedom. Right? We're here to walk in it. We want to experience the freedom that God has for us. 
We're not just going to celebrate it without stepping into it to actually live in the freedom that God has for us. It's almost like how much sense would it make for an army to go in and liberate a bunch of prisoners in, in a prison, right? Prisoners of war. And then what if those prisoners just stayed in the prison? What if they were like, and they, every day they would throw a party and celebrate that they were liberated, but they continued living in the prison, eating bread and water. Just as free as you and me, but they stayed in the prison. How do you think the liberators would feel? It's like, we freed you, and we're glad that you appreciate that you are free. We're so glad you've got the idea of that in your mind, and by faith you know you're free. But walk out of the prison. Like, get out. Go live. Be free. Step into the joy that God has called you into in a spiritual sense. It would make no sense for us to sit in the prison when the door is open, when you're invited to go out, when God has fought and won the war for your freedom to sit as a prisoner of war in your prison would be a tragedy. What is the point of sonship if all we do is sit in our cell and say, well, glad I'm a son. God has invited us into living this out. You're free to sit. But why would you sit when you can soar? I mean, God has invited you to live in power through Christ in you. And so here's the invitation. Rise up from your cell, church of God, and begin living with the power of Christ in you. Experience the freedom. Experience the marriage God intended for you. Experience freedom from addiction. Experience new attitudes. Let go of that temper that's beaten you up for years. Let go of all of those things that have kept you and held you hostage. You have been declared free, and you have the power to walk in that freedom. You have Christ in you and Christ on you, and we have no excuse but to live in the joy that God has set before us. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to get it by laying on the couch. There are going to be battles to fight. You're going to have to take up your sword. But it's Christ in you that's won that battle. And you can step into that battle for hearts of your family, your wife, your kids. You can step into the battlefield for the lost hearts both here and globally. You can step back on that battlefield to not just live in mediocrity but genuine joy in Christ. We can fight against laziness. We can fight against anger. We can give up unforgiveness. We can give up lust. We can give up greed. We can give up pride. Not because you figured it out, but because Christ is in you. And we walk in the Spirit. Just as Paul said, we are crucified with Christ. Therefore, we no longer live. In the life we live in the body, we live to the power of Christ in us. Right? That's what he's saying. And we do that with confidence knowing that he has loved us and given himself for us. So if this morning you as a believer are experiencing in your heart a whisper, uh, Abba, Dad, something in you, you feel it calling you toward the Father. That's the Spirit. And he's saying, come. Come. Not just legally, but intimately. Let me be your Father. Not just in theory, but in experience, let me be your father. Let's walk together. Listen, church, as you would stand to your feet, we're going to give you a chance to respond to this. If you need, as a Christian, to come and ask God to begin moving in you, you do that. If you need to repent, do that. If you need to turn from something, do that. But can I say this? If you are not a Christian, 
you don't know this Jesus we're talking about, if you've never put your faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection as substitute for you, he paid the penalty of your sins so that you might, by faith, receive forgiveness and, and be restored and redeemed into Jesus. You can do that this morning by simply placing your faith in Jesus, repenting of your sin, reject that former way of life, change your mind, and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior by faith. Confess your sin before him. Ask him to come into your life and make you a new creation. Yield to him. He will fill you with the Spirit and invite you into a new way of living. That's not just theology, it's experience. And he invites you in. You guys respond as the Lord would have you to. Father, this is your time. Use it. Holy Spirit, move as you intend. In Jesus' name. We want to thank you one more time for taking the time to listen to these messages that God's provided our fellowship. We believe he's doing something special among us and would love for you to be a part of it. We hope that you'll take the time to come and visit us in person someday soon. And we invite you to visit our website, covenantcommunitylj.com. There you'll find information on how to contact us if you have a prayer request or if there's a specific way we can minister to you and your family. Until then, God bless you.